peanuts. Now, this podcast covers true crime cases that may not be suitable for young listeners. There may be graphic and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to anybody who is new to the podcast or to my channel. Uh, we discuss on this podcast in particular serial killers from each of one of the states of the US. So our state today is actually going to be Alabama. And we're going to be talking about a serial killer by the name of Daniel Lee Siebert. Now, he was born on June 7th in 1954 to Erwin Julius and Dorothy Siebert in Matton, Illinois. Now, I didn't find any pictures of the family or any pictures of Daniel growing up, but to understand him better, I think I should explain some of his background. Now, I'm going to start by talking about his mum and dad, and this will give you a bit of insight into his childhood. And I think I've said it on my other podcast, guys, but serial killers' childhoods are really co quite often the most horrendous I've ever read about. Now, before I begin this podcast, the pictures in some, at some points in the background may disturb some people. I just would like to warn you all. Now, let's begin with Daniel's mum, Dorothy. Now, she was born during the Great Depression. It's not a great time to be alive. And Dorothy's mum, Cora, she would actually only be 15 when she would marry a gentleman by the name of Paul Richards. And he was 18 at the time. Now, I'm seeing this so often when I'm doing my podcasts and all my research, how young these people are when they get married. They're basically kids themselves and then having babies. It just seems like a real oddity to me. And there is a part of me that just can't really comprehend it. Anyway, I'm sorry, I did get a bit sidetracked there. So by the time Cora was 17, she would have Dorothy. But the marriage to Paul, it wouldn't last as records have actually indicated that she'd be married uh, She'd be married again at the age of 21. Now, from the information that I've read and gathered, around the age of three, uh, Dorothy was in foster care or something like that. Now, there's not a whole lot of information around her records, but the records definitely reflect that she wasn't with her mum or dad. Now, one article in particular refers to the state possibly taking her children away. Um, Dorothy did have an older brother, but he wasn't staying wherever she was. Now, by the age of 13, she was still in foster care with the same family that she'd been in since the age of three. But I really, I can't imagine having spent the most of my life away from my family. But then again, we don't really know the circumstances around why she wasn't, so I don't want to have to judge in that situation. However, I do think there would have to be some serious impacts like abandonment issues, at least from Dorothy's perspective, to just name a few, right? Now, I did manage to find a photo of Dorothy, which you can actually now see on the screen. Now, she's apparently 14 in this photo, and it's a high school yearbook photo. Now, when Dorothy was just 15, she would go to Pocahontas, Arkansas, uh, which you can tell by the map on the screen, but that's really quite a long way for such a young girl to travel by herself. Now, this is my opinion, and I've got nothing to confirm this, but I do think that Dorothy was desperately seeking the family environment she possibly lacked um, because she would marry a 22-year-old man, 22-year-old man, where she would promptly have a daughter. Now, not even six months after her daughter was born, her husband would end up leaving, for her, leaving her. He'd apply for a divorce, claiming desertion. 
Now, this one shocks me a little bit considering he was the one who actually left her and moved away from the area. So I don't know how he could have claimed desertion, but I don't know the court system well enough to know or understand that. Now, in the 1950s, it was basically unheard of that a woman would be divorced and a single mum. And unfortunately, given that period of time, she would really have to find a husband quick smart or she'd be known as a spinster or she might not be able to be married. Now, it sounds so horrible when I put it like that, but it was such an odd time for women. You know, we weren't, we weren't allowed to be single. We weren't allowed to have jobs. It was just a really, really different era. I'm not judging. I'm just wanting to remark on what her life and why she would have made some of the choices that she's made. Now, during her short and quick marriage, she would end up moving back to Matton in Illinois. Um, now, all of the choices and impacts in her life would actually end up leading to a man by the name of Erwin Julius Siebert. Now, he was born in 1928 in Effingham, Illinois, and he would actually be a twin, and he would be one of six children. Uh, he was of German descent on both his mum and his dad's side. He would serve in the army from 1948 to 1952, where he would see parts of World War II. Now, there's not a whole lot available on his childhood or how he grew up, but there's certainly proof of what a horrible, horrible father he would make one day. Though the only photo I can find, which is on the screen at the moment, it's really grainy, so I'm not sure how much of it you, you, of him you can actually see. Now, at some point between 1952 and 1953, he would meet and marry Dorothy, and so begins our story of Daniel Lee Siebert. Now, I wanted to give you all a little bit of insight into his mother's background, as you may be able to understand some of her choices that she ends up making about Daniel's childhood. So please don't judge her too harshly. Um, I just wanted to give you a bit of background to understand why she's done what she's done in certain, certain circumstances. Now, unfortunately, there is not much good to say about Daniel's childhood. His father was incredibly violent uh, with a really horrid temper. Now, the next statements I'm about to say haven't been confirmed. So Daniel would allege that his father was actually sexually abusive. He'd be beaten, he'd be fought forced to perform really disgusting acts with his father that no son should ever do. Um, but the one thing that, I, that can be proven is that his father was physically abusive. Now, by the way, I'd like to point out that I'm not actually saying what Daniel alleged wasn't true. I just have no evidence or proof. Uh, later on in this podcast, you're actually going to see some of Daniel's artwork. Um, I'm not going to put up on one of the screen. I'm not going to put this up on the screen. There is one particular artwork which uh, sort of depicts uh, his father and himself, and it's certainly if it did happen to him, um, it certainly was really horrible what he depicted in that picture. Now, I'm going to get back to that physical physical abuse. Daniel's mum, Dorothy, would say that Daniel was the one who was the most affected by his father. Now, this is a direct quote from her in an. Uh, in a newspaper article. Now, he did hit some, but it was mainly his attitude. He, Erwin, never wanted to spend any time with him. He didn't want to bother he didn't want to bother him. He was not an understanding man. Now Daniel would live in constant fear of the next beating. But what he did find was an outlet or an escape. Now this would be art. Now, I've put some of more of the tasteful ones into the background at the moment, and you can actually see that he's quite talented. Now, the less tasteful ones, 
They're really good, but they're just not my taste. Um, I may or may not show them later in the podcast. I haven't really decided as of yet. Now, he would use this talent later on while he traveled through the US. Um, It would actually gain him a little bit of money and he would be able to travel and do what he needed to do. Now, things would start to change for Daniel in 1967. Erwin would come home after work and just really start in on Daniel. Now, this had been a particularly bad week in the house. They'd been goading each other. It just all came to a head. So he would start to beat him and Dorothy would actually try and step in to stop this from happening, which would actually lead to Erwin turning on her and beating her. Now, this would lead to Daniel defending his mum. Now, for his bravery, he was rewarded with his father grabbing him around the neck and just choking him. Now, this was the last brutal straw for Dorothy. Uh, She would file for divorce. She'd be granted full custody of those kids and even awarded child support. Now, I haven't given much uh, about Daniel's older sister um, from her first marriage because there's really not much, but I imagine she would have been exposed to the abuse as well. Now, I do want to say as well that I do think it was an incredibly brave thing for Dorothy to do because I do know for most people in domestic violence situations, leaving can be one of the hardest steps, right? So I think it's really admirable she did what she did. I know that she exposed her children to an abusive dick for a really long time, but I do think in the end she did put her children first and I think she did make up for it. However, even with not having his violent father in his life, his, his life would just take a complete turn for the worst. I think there was just too much in his formidable years that he would just never fully recover from it at all. Now, some people can make their lives better, and some people head in a direction of the same violence that was depicted and in, inflicted upon them. So what was to come in the coming years would shape him really into every woman's worst nightmare. Now, Daniel would claim after his mum and dad's divorce that his mum had numerous boyfriends and she would bring them home, which made him really uncomfortable and really quite angry. Now, my own thoughts on why he was angry are perhaps that Daniel saw this divorce as an opportunity for his mum to repair the damage that had been done and maybe to bond with her children over their shared grief over the abuse. Now, given what Dorothy had been through in her childhood, I imagine she was actually seeking to build the family that she never had. So I think that... For every reason he's angry, she's trying to make it better for him because she doesn't want him to have the same childhood she had. I don't know. I'm just theorizing here. Now, his mum would remarry for the final time and have another son, and his father would also remarry. Now, all these changes in Daniel's life, that seemed to send him into a downward spiral that would really continue for the rest of his life. Now, he would begin his descent into criminal behavior, petty, Nonviolent crimes such as stealing and truancy. Uh, this actually means, just in case nobody is aware, that he would skip school and school-related concerns. Now, as a result of this behaviour, he would end up being sent to a boys' home that was operated by the Illinois Department of Corrections. Uh, it's a place very similar to the one that I'm showing you on the screen, and he would be there from 1968 to 1971. Now, he would run away from the home, And he would say that during that time he ran away, he would become a male prostitute 
and develop a drug addiction to angel dust. Now, this is also known as PCP. Um, honestly, the drug addiction, it really doesn't surprise me at all, given what he'd experienced as a child, going into prostitution, which I'm really even struggling to think about myself, given that he was barely 17. Now, something that I did read is really quite interesting. A psychologist that would actually testify on Daniel's behalf um, would end up saying that the longer a person uses PCP, the more likely of developing antisocial behaviours. This particular psychologist would actually diagnose him with antisocial personality disorder. Now, you do have to wonder if the drug habit was the reason that he had antisocial personality disorder or was it a nature versus nurture situation? Um, that really intrigues me because I'm just not sure. I do think some of it was nature and I do think some of it was nurture. I don't know how it would have developed differently if he had perhaps had a better path after his situation of his, of his parents divorcing. Now, the police would end up locating him and this time he'd be sent to a youth centre. Now, this is somewhere between a boys' home and a prison. Now, I have to wonder, during this time, where were his parents and why weren't they anywhere near their son? Like, that's me personally. I just sort of don't understand why they wouldn't have been around, right? So around 1972, he would be 18 and he desperately wanted and needed structure in his life. Now, he would enlist in the army and use his stepfather's last name. He called himself Daniel Marlowe rather than Siebert. Now, I'm not sure if that was to run from his delinquent past or to remove any trace of his father. This would not be the only time he used a different name, but I think at least this time it wasn't for nefarious reasons. He wouldn't last more than 12 months in the military. Uh, not much is available about his time uh, during in the military, but what I do know is he went able and was dishonorably discharged. Daniel would end up heading out west to California. Now, I've got to say that would be an awesome time to be in that state, and I have some pretty awesome pictures in the background that show you what it would have been like. So between 1972 and 1975, he would have two children, a son and a daughter. His son, Damien, seems to be following in his father's footsteps. He is currently in prison serving a sentence for forced oral copulation with a minor. Now, this minor happens to be 14 years old. I'm honestly really saddened to hear that this is how his son's life turned out for him. There's really nothing more on him and there's no information available on his daughter. While he was in LA, he would be charged with a series of violent crimes between 1972 and 1978. These would include drug charges and violent assaults as well as battery. He would move to Las Vegas where he would actually commit his first murder. Unfortunately, I'm unable to find the victim's name, but I was able to dig in and find some details. While he was living in Vegas, he would enter a same-sex relationship. Now, from the article that I've read, it says that this relationship was volatile. This doesn't surprise me in the least given his exposure to his parents' marriage, which was violent in itself. So I imagine he was mirroring what went on during his childhood. 
he would end up stabbing his boyfriend over 29 times. Now, this next part is going to flabbergast people. Flabbergast people, sorry. Now, the court would convict him of of manslaughter. Daniel would say it was a crime of passion and then it turned into self-defence. Now, given the attitude towards same-sex relationships in the 70s, and even though this was 1979, I think this was a huge miscarriage of justice and I have a feeling that police and courts just wanted this tucked away and solved and for it to all go away, right? It actually reminds me of why Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't caught because of this same lax attitude. Oh, it's the gay community, not much care and not much empathy. And further adding insult to injury, the jury would actually recommend leniency during the sentence and he was only given 10 years. Now, me personally, I think he should have never been allowed out of prison. During his time in prison, he would talk his way into a work release program where in 1981 in December, he would escape and he'd head back to California to a town by the name of Oakland. You can see on the screen how far he made it when he'd actually escaped. He would kidnap an African-American lady. Her details, sorry, her details are unknown. She would fear for her life so much that she would jump, jump, sorry, from a moving vehicle on the Golden Gate Bridge. I imagine you would have to be really, really fearful for your life to do that. He would end up being picked up by the police the very next night and would have another year added to his sentence. The reason I do mention, by the way, that it was an African-American lady comes up a little bit later when we're referring to more of the murders. So we'll get back to that, but it's just a little bit of a hint. Now, the next part has my mind boggled again. He would be paroled in 1985, only serving six years of his 11-year sentence. He was only granted parole under the proviso that he would return to San Francisco court to report on those pesky kidnapping and assault charges of the woman who leapt from the car. Is anyone shocked that he didn't do that? Because just as you can imagine, when his court date arrived, he was nowhere to be found. I don't understand how a court system can work like that. That boggles my mind. Now, the next part of the podcast is where we do learn how truly depraved Daniel Lee Seifert could be. His next murders are truly horrendous, guys. Now, he would meet a gentleman by the name of Donald Hendron, where he would be hitchhiking across the US. Donald would pick up Daniel in Tucson, Arizona, except he was no longer calling himself Daniel Seifert or Daniel Marlowe. He was now going by Danny or Daniel Spence. Donald was travelling to Alabama to work at the Alabama Institute of Death of the Deaf and Blind. He ended up taking an interest in Daniel's artwork and said, uh, considering he was running the theatrical department, Danny should actually come and work for him and design the sets. This would be one of the biggest mistakes Donald ever made in his life, and I imagined he has thought a lot about this after the murders. No one had any idea what was about to shake up this university and that it was going to shake them to the core. 
Daniel's original plan was to stay with his parents in Illinois. And while he was staying there, he realized that offer was just too good to be true. He would ring Donald and see if that job was still available. Side note, by the way, I read something about Daniel, that when people at the university met him, they found him charming and a really easygoing person. And this is probably one of my biggest concerns for psychopaths like Daniel or Ted Bundy. Now, these are just two examples for me of serial killers who really had no issue blending in and being really well-liked, part of the community. They were just really ingrained. They both received job offers working with vulnerable people. Daniel would work at a school for the deaf and blind, and Ted Bundy ended up working on a suicide hotline. They truly, truly are chameleons. They can just blend in anywhere. So after about a week after Donald arrived at the uh, Institute, sorry, the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and the Blind, Daniel would come to work for him in a voluntary position at the school. Now, he would use his artistic talent to create design sets. So here's something for you guys to just have a little bit of a think about. In 1986, a criminal could just get a job at a school without any, some sort of a background check. In our day and age, do we think this could happen? I don't think so. But the thought truly terrifies me because a background check could have prevented the loss of at least five lives. Daniel and Donald would end up sharing an apartment, the Porter Apartments, uh, which wasn't sorry, which was located not too far from the school. So you can see the outside of the complex on the screen right now, but I wasn't able to get any pictures of the inside. But judging from the outside exterior, not sure they, they were that nice. It wouldn't be long before Daniel would find someone to date, 24-year-old Sherry Weathers. Now, she happened to be a student at the, at the Alabama Institute, and she was also a single mum. It made Donald really uncomfortable that he was seeing a student, so he would end up actually moving out about a month after moving in. Now, the reason that he was really uncomfortable was just due to the fact, even though Danny or Daniel was only in a voluntary position, it was really frowned upon for a student and a teacher to have relationship. So I'm guessing that Donald felt like that Danny was in a position of authority and didn't feel comfortable that this was what he was doing. Now, the terror begins on February 19, 1986. Daniel would go to his neighbor's place, a guy by the name of Stephen, and Stephen's girlfriend, Lisa Odom, would also be there. Linda, uh, sorry, Linda Odom. Linda was 32 years old and a mum of two. Now, unfortunately, I looked far and wide, but I just couldn't find any photos of her. Um, and I'm really sorry for that. So they would all end up having lunch together until Stephen had to leave and go and get his car. That would end up leaving Daniel and Linda alone. But once Stephen arrived back at his apartment, no one was there. Um, he would find this strange because he'd expected for Linda to still be there. He'd end up knocking on Daniel's door and ask him if he knew where she was. Uh, Daniel would say no, and he had no idea, and he'd even, he'd even look for Stephen, knowing full well where she was. Daniel would actually would admit during his confession that he'd, he had killed Linda in her boyfriend's apartment before he would end up moving her body back to his apartment. And even though she was already dead, 
he would admit to the police that he just continued beating her. This is really just the proof of the rage that was inside of him. It was almost like a burst of the dam. He had an outlet and he certainly wasn't going to stop. Daniel would never give an actual reason for her death. Now, she is suspected of being the first victim at the start of this murderous rampage. But we will return to Linda Odom later when the police actually discover her body. It's not really clear for me uh, if the next murders happened the same day as Linda Odom's or the next. I'm not sure if that matters, but I do want to be clear because the research was so conflicting. It did have different dates, but at the end, it's the victims that matter. And by the end of this rampage, three women would be dead along with two children. So Sherry Weathers, the woman that Daniel was dating, would live at the Sunrise Apartments. Now, this was a complex for people with disabilities. I've just got some pictures on the screen so you can see what they look like. I've also got a map up later at the end of this video, sorry, at the end of this collage of the photos to show you how close the Porter Apartments were. Now, Sherry had two little boys, Chad and Joey, and also a friend by the name of Linda. This Linda happens to have a different last name of Jarman. The last picture after the boys is Linda Jarman, and you can see that she's also an African-American woman. It's been reported that the night of the murder of Sherry, um, that Linda and Daniel, so it's been reported that the night of the murder, that Sherry, Linda and Daniel were actually seen buying beer with a plan to play cards with later that night. Now, Daniel would end up needing to go for another beer run, and during this time, drinking would continue with a couple of neighbours also joining at different times. Now, Linda would end up going back to her apartment, which was also at the Sunrise Apartments. Now, Daniel wouldn't let on too many details about what led to the murders. But what he did say, it was truly appalling. It was truly, truly appalling. He would say that he killed Sherry because Sherry was deaf and that meant she would amount to nothing. What type of disgusting human being looks at a person and says that? Like, and that's their reasoning behind it. Just appalling. He would strangle her to death and rather than leaving the boys to just sleep, he would wake them up individually and they would meet the same fate as their mum. A truly frightening thing that I read was that a neighbour of Sherry's would hear, come to me so you can join your mother. Imagine being such a vile human being that you would say this to, the, to a child as their last words to hear. He could have just left them alive, the children were sleeping, they hadn't witnessed anything, so it's not like he could have been easily identified. He was already going to be easily identified. Why would you need to kill the children as well? Just an appalling human being, to be perfectly frank. And I, he would say something as equally vile, for killing the boys. He had to kill the boys because now they had no mother and so they wouldn't amount to anything. I'm truly disgusted as I say this. After he killed the family of three, he'd pose them. He would place them in the shape of a cross with Joey and Chad stacked upon Cherry and then covered with a sheet. Now, 
covering the victims with a sheet usually implies remorse, as you didn't, as you don't want to look at the body. But I'd have to know where the sheet was placed, and I was unable to find out that info. So I really don't know if there was genuine remorse or that was just to pose the scene more. Now, Daniel would then make his way over to Linda Jarman's apartment under the ruse that he and Sherry had had a fight and he thought it would be best not to drive home and whether it would be okay if he stayed at her house. Now, Linda's last act of kindness would be fatal and the next quote is from a court document. Before I read it aloud, though, it seems that he put the moves on her. So you'll get, you'll get what I mean when I finish this quote. They then went to the bedroom, partially clothed, and lay down upon the bed where he murdered her by strangling her. Daniel would add further insult to injury. He'd steal her VCR so he could pawn it, and her car, a yellow Buick, to use as his getaway car. Seriously, guys, what's with killers stealing from their victims? Have you not done enough? That you, that you feel the need to do that. Like, seriously, guys, seriously. Now, on Sunday, February 23rd, just days after the murder, it was noticed that Sherry and her boys hadn't been seen. A neighbour would talk to a social worker at the school, Winda, Wanda Huntley, and that neighbour would request to go and check on the family. And Wanda and some of the others from the school, they would go to Sherry's apartment and they would discover the bodies. Police were called immediately and the investigation would soon begin. Now, just a few hours into processing the scene, they would be told that another student happened to be missing as well. So the police would go to Linda Jarman's apartment and discover the body. They would then learn that Sherry was dating a volunteer at the school by the name of Danny Spence. He also hadn't been seen around. So he became the prime suspect pretty quickly in all of this. Now, during the investigation, the police would find several fingerprints at both scenes. They would get a hit when they ran them through the database. Daniel Lee Siebert. Now, they suspected pretty quickly that he was using the alias, Danny Spence. They would put a nationwide, be on the lookout, be on the lookout, otherwise known as a bolo, for a 1973 yellow Buick car the same car that he had stolen from Linda Jarman. Now, around the same time, um, the bodies of the, Weather fam- of the Weathers family and Linda Jarman's were being found. Another body was found in a nearby county, a 19-year-old by the name of Cheryl Evans. This name will come back up, so we're going to come back to her later. Now, the next murders and assaults I discuss in the podcast Daniel wasn't convicted of. He would be charged with as he could be linked to them and he did confess to them. When the police would try and find Daniel at the Cora Apartments, they would meet Stephen and he would mention that his, that his girlfriend, Linda Odom, was missing and he hadn't been seen and she hadn't been seen since he'd been, she seems, I'm so sorry, she hadn't been seen since being with Daniel. The police were unsure if she'd gone with him willingly or possibly worse. Before I begin, Daniel managed to elude the police for six months. He would be arrested during this time. It's truly terrifying for me that he was able to continue to commit crimes and get away with it for over six months. Linda's Buick would be found in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, 
with a flat tire and Daniel managed to already get 350 miles away from the murder sites in Alabama. They would find a makeshift campsite nearby where they could find more than enough evidence that Daniel had killed the Weathers family and Linda Jarman. This evidence would include related ID documents for Joey and Chad and Sherry Weathers, as well as documents relating to Linda Jarman. The police would also find an address book that belonged to Daniel, and one particular female officer was able to build a really positive relationship from his exes, and she would end up promising the police department and that particular lady that she would contact them if Daniel contacted her. He would manage to get to Atlantic City, where he was really trying to work out what he was to do next. He would kill a lady by the name of Beatrice McDougall. She was a tour guide in Atlantic City. She was a mother of three, 57 years old, and she was described as just a really lovely person and easy to be around. And she was just coming into her own as her children had all grown up. He would stab her and rob her, just more disgusting behaviour. Halfway through March, almost a month after he killed the Weathers family and Linda's, someone would find a skeletonized body just outside of a cemetery in Alabama. It would be the remains of Linda Odom. It was now realized by the police that Daniel had in fact killed five people, not four. So six months is a really long time to be on the run. So his luck was bound to run out. He would call that particular ex-girlfriend from his address book and she would indeed contact the police. She wasn't able to get many details from him, from him as to where he was or anything like that. But what she did get, she provided to the police. And the next time that Daniel called her, the police already had a tap on her phone and it was, via, and it was traced back to Hurricane Mills in Tennessee. So they would hightail it as fast as they could. And they would show his picture around town and they found out that he was actually working as an artist in one of those restaurants. He was due to pick up his paycheck and they would wait throughout the night and some of the next day and they would finally arrest Daniel Lee Siebert with little disturbance and little fuss. But he would actually ask, how did you find me? Daniel Lee Siebert, he was ready to talk, he was ready to confess and he really he failed to show any remorse or care for what he'd done to his victims. It was all really a matter of fact with him. It was all just like stating facts and it was just, there was no emotion behind it at all. He quickly confessed to the murders of Sherry Chad and Joey Weathers, Linda Jarman and Linda Odom. He would also confess to killing Beatrice McDougall in Atlantic City. And remember when I said Cheryl Evans, the 19 year old, that was found in another county within days of those murders, he would admit to her murder as well. Now, he would say that he met her in Birmingham where he would murder and rob her and then he would dump her body in Ohatichi, I think it is. It's up on your screen now. So you can view the possible route he actually took when he went to Birmingham and when he went to Tachi and when he went back to his Porter Apartments. Unfortunately, there's really not much information available about Cheryl. So 
he would definitely imply that there were more murders. And when he was questioned by the police about how many more, he'd be really, really vague. And he'd say, maybe a dozen, maybe more. I try to put these things out of my mind. I don't know really how to take that. I do think there was more, but it's just really hard to know with serial killers just because they don't tell a lot of truth. Now, while he was waiting for trial in 1987, he would confess to two other murders in LA. Now, they were originally linked to the South Side Strangler, uh, so he would also be charged with their murders. A 20-year-old, 28-year-old by the name of Gidget Castro and a 19-year-old, Nessia McElrath, and both had been strangled. Daniel would say that they were both prostitutes and he killed them so he could rob them. But what I've been able to find out about Gidget, it just doesn't appear that she was a prostitute. In the 1970s, she was an advocate for the African-American and Puerto Rican community. She would even speak at the Black Panther rallies. She'd speak on police brutality and the raids that occurred on Black Panther headquarters. And it should also be noted that she was a mum of two at the time of her death. So I just, I, I find that difficult to believe. And unfortunately, once again, I was not able to find much about the other victim, Nessia. Now, Daniel would, he would end up confessing to 13 murders, but he would only be linked to 10. That's not to say he didn't do them. It's just that I guess they couldn't find enough evidence. He would be sentenced to death for the murders of the Weathers family and Linda Jarman, but he would be only sentenced to life for the murder of Linda Odom. Now, he was charged with murder for Beatrice McDougall, Gidget Castro, and Nessia McElrath. However, he was never convicted. Now, I think the reason behind this was due to the death sentence that he'd received in Alabama. I'm guessing it would be a no point extraditing a dead man walking. I, I, I wasn't able to find out, again, too much about why he wasn't convicted in those other states. But while he was in prison, he liked to draw and he would often depict women in all sorts of not so great poses and a lot of bondage. Now, he stated he learned how to draw when he was hiding from his father and he would end up selling his artwork on different websites. He would have a few female pen pals who were really devoted to him and they'd post updates and all sorts of things on his death penalty across the across the web. Siebert's ex execution was actually set for October 2007 after the Attorney General declared that he had exhausted all of his appeals. Siebert had challenged the death row protocol and the death penalty. Now he came within a day of his execution before his execution was end up, ended up being stayed uh, pending a Supreme Court ruling. While being, so he had pancreatic cancer while he was in jail, guys. So this just to give you some concept. So while he was being treated for the pancreatic cancer, he tried to challenge um, his death penalty, stating that the drugs used to treat his cancer would interact with the drugs used for the lethal injection and cause him unnecessary pain. Now, a physician stated that it was possible uh, that the injection, the lethal injection drugs would cause him to vomit. From my understanding of the lethal injection, it the first part paralyzes the first needle paralyzes you. The second one, it basically, I think they say it burns you from the inside, and the third one sends you to sleep. 
I don't know if that's true, guys. It's just stuff I've read. But I imagine with some of the cancer medication, it possibly could interfere. So I don't really know. But before the state could put him to death, he would end up, his cancer would end up killing him. Um, so after his death, an Alabama attorney general, Troy King, said that his death put an end to years of legal shenanigans that have gone on. And Esther Brown, an executive secretary of Project Hope to abolish the death penalty, stated he certainly hoped to die from cancer before he was executed. It's a shame that he got what he wanted, but the people who he brutally executed had no say in the matter, and that's probably the biggest injustice of us all. And that concludes the story of Daniel Lee Siebert. Um, thank you so much, guys, for listening. You are all absolutely wonderful. Please hit the subscribe button, the follow button. Um, if you'd like, if you are on YouTube, just remember to hit that little bell so you can be notified of any new videos. I hope you all have a wonderful Friday and I will speak to you soon. Bye.